Let's pray together. Lord, you're good to us, so good to, to have orchestrated and ordained such a lineup of praise for us. It has been so driven into us, this great theme of your grace and the fact that you are tender and merciful, and though we identify with your sufferings and, and fellowship in them, there is coming a day when all, all will be at rest and the struggle and battle with weakness and limitation will be over. And at last, we will see you as you know us, and we will know you in that way. And we rejoice in that. And so even as we come to your word, our hearts are prepared. We're, we've been tenderized by the truth. And so help us to know you more richly, to fellowship with you more intimately, even as we study your word this morning. And we lift this up to you in your son's name. Amen. Oh, it's good to be back with you. Thank you for your prayers for a little bit of a time out of the pulpit that was unexpected. I had, uh, as you know, a little surgical procedure, but whatever they did, they seemed to be able to put me back together. So uh, if the top half of me falls off over there, just come and put it back on and we'll, be, we'll keep on going. But uh, no, it's been great to um, see the other guys in the pulpit and uh, listen on live stream and just a delight to be fed in my heart from the Word of God. Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's go to the 11th chapter of Luke. Luke's Gospel, the 11th chapter, and of course, a very important section for us and real familiar to all of us. In fact, we could say this morning and for the next three weeks, we're going to go to school on the subject of prayer as taught by the Lord Jesus, as taught directly by the Lord. You know, the amazing thing about the Gospels and the record that we have of the Lord is that He prayed. He prayed constantly as a way of life. He manifested a dependence upon the Spirit of God. He gave Himself over to the sustaining grace of His heavenly Father. He submitted Himself to the communion He needed with His heavenly Father, the strength that His humanity desperately needed for the day-to-day work that he was on the earth to do. He filled his life with prayer. And even as chapter 11 opens up, you notice here that Luke tells us that it came about that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, this was the the habit of his life. It was well known by those who were around him, and of course, word on the street was that He was in a devotional relationship with his God. Now, I understand that being the God-man, he he is God, and so one might wonder how it is that he would go to his heavenly Father to pray or ask anything. But this is Jesus in his incarnation. This is Jesus in his humanity. He gave himself over to the work of the Spirit, the strength and leading of the Spirit of God, so that he might, as a man, represent what it means to us as his Children to depend upon God, submit to God, devote ourselves to God in a communion. It requires trust and faith, devotion and communion and desire 
to be one with our Lord. This was the habit of Jesus' life. In fact, so much so that the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5 verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions, even with loud cries and tears, to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. This was the Lord. This is what prayer was like. I mean, you take a record of Jesus' life and it's just all over the Gospels. Sometimes he even communed with his heavenly Father all night long. We saw that in the sixth chapter of Luke, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the whole night praying to God. There were things on his heart, burdens that kept him awake, tremblings of soul that mattered to him. And he went. That's how it is sometimes for the believer. You want to depend upon God, God throws you into a whirlwind of turmoil and struggle and pressure and suddenly you find yourself not able to rest, not able to sleep. You find yourself trembling and needy. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. It was sometimes all night, it was sometimes in the early morning. It was almost always spoken of as related to a significant burden. Luke chapter 3, 21 and 22, when the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened. I mean, it was a serious thing, the commissioning of his ministry, the beginning of his work. Whatever God's given you to do, whatever ministry he's given you to do, prayer should become the beginning of it, the permeation of it from start to finish, but certainly at the outset. Luke 6, 12 to 13, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. He spent the whole night praying because he was the next day going to choose the men who would grab the mantle. Important. Luke 9, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? He, he wants to affirm that the faith of the disciples was in him because he was just about to tell them, hey, they're going to take me and the chief priests and, and scribes are going to kill me. Matthew 14, 23, right after he had fed the miraculous, or miraculously fed the, the, the large crowd, it says after he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Why? Because... They were intending to take him and make him king by force, some military, some political king. He needed to pray and ask God to protect and keep him from, from being thrust upon into some political battle when he needed to focus on the work of redemption and go to the cross. He prayed over meals, Matthew 14, 19. He took bread and gave thanks over the special worship meal of the Passover Luke chapter 24 says, when he needed rest and clarity of mind, when crowds were around him and he wanted to hear them and he had to heal their sicknesses, he often withdrew, Luke 5 says, to lonely places and prayed. Why? He needed rest and he needed clarity of mind. So many people, Mark 6 says, were coming and going. They didn't even have a chance to eat. And he said, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. Let's get some rest. I need clarity of mind. I need to pray. I need to get sustenance from the Lord. And he needed fortitude, courage. 
He was God, but in his humanity, he had the same limitations we have, and he needed to pray to his God that he would have energy, respite for energy. It says in Mark 6, 34 and 35, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. They were like sheep without a shepherd, and so he taught them many things, and by this time, it was late in the day. His disciples came to him and said, this is a very remote place. It's already very late, and after leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Even after a full day's labor, he was burdened. It was on his mind. He needed strength. And of course, you know, when he was tempted, the beginning of his ministry when Satan tried to disqualify him for this great work of redemption, Jesus prayed. And just before going to the cross, you remember he told his disciples in the garden, you sit there, and he went over a ways, and his soul was deeply troubled, and he prayed over and over again so that he wouldn't fall into some sort of gripping limitation in his humanity and his human will and become stubborn against the cross. He was wanting to go to the cross. He even told the disciples, you pray that you might not be tempted. And you remember they fell asleep. And he had to say to them, couldn't you, couldn't you just pray an hour with me? He prayed for the advancement of the gospel Luke 23, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is while he was hanging on the cross. He is praying. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my my spirit. And he gave up his last breath. This is his prayer uh, that the work of redemption would happen, that the Father would forgive based upon his sacrifice. He even prayed in front of the disciples Lord, take care of the ones that come to me by faith. Take care of all those who come to me by faith through their witness. Preserve them, protect them, make them one, and bring them home to glory so that they can look at me in all my glory and be filled with what I want them to be filled with. He even prayed in front of his disciples at a time when perseverance was needed, protection was needed, unity was needed. He filled his life with prayer. And so that's why you see here that this disciple, whoever he was, is longing to imitate Christ in prayer. Notice in the text, Jesus had been away praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, we don't know if the disciples were with him, or this one was with him, or saw him, or was within earshot, or it was just another one of those moments when Jesus had gone away to pray. But after he'd finished, I mean, that's marked out by Luke. It's marked out by Luke because he is demonstrating here that a disciple who sees that kind of habit of prayer in the Lord himself, then we want to know. I don't don't want to blow this. I don't want to come up with the wrong habit. I don't want to see prayer wrongly. I don't want to treat it cheaply. Teach me, Lord, what this is about. And so that's what he says. Lord, teach us to pray Just as John, speaking of the Baptist, the ministry of John the Baptist, just as John, your forerunner, taught his disciples. Now you'll note that the text doesn't give this disciple's name, but since Jesus had already taught a pattern of prayer, you remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 records that, since that was already taught, we might assume this guy wasn't there. We might assume he'd heard some things, might assume he'd been exposed to some things, and now that having... Watch Jesus' prayer life. He wants the specifics. Maybe he wasn't on the hillside sermon. 
Jesus, you remember at that time, had contrasted in Matthew 6 the arrogance of repetitive, empty prayers that were um, done by the Pharisees to look spiritual, to appear spiritual. And Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, on the mountainside, he said, look, don't pray like that. Don't pray with arrogance. Don't pray for the eye-catching public. Don't do that. Don't pray to impress people. You pray to the Father. If people are hearing it, that's fine, but don't pray that they might hear it. Pray as if you're in some place by yourself, on your own. Cultivate and nurture your prayer life there. Do that. And then he taught the pattern for a prayer life. It's as if Jesus set up a, a theological and a practical framework within which our prayers are always expressed. Variety of kinds of prayer, rushed in, sudden burdens thrust before God, prayer that we don't even understand the gist of, Romans 8, other prayer that's systematic like the Apostle Paul who had lists of people to pray for, other times we, we, we do it publicly and corporately, a variety of dispositions and times and places of prayer, but a general framework of themes seems to be what Jesus set forth that first time he gave instruction on it, and he does a similar thing here. If you would grew up a Jew in Israel, you knew about rote Jewish prayers. If you'd been a disciple of John the Baptist, maybe this guy was. John the Baptist taught his disciples a, a pattern of prayer, it seems, as is indicated here. Maybe even certain terminology that, that was theologically rich and important to say. Maybe John the Baptist taught that. And this disciple is watching Jesus' prayer life and he wants to make sure it's not cheap. And he's drawn to Jesus' prayers. Notice he says, after he had finished. I just, I just started to think about this. And of course, they'd watched him. They'd heard him. They'd listened to his terminology and his expressions. They'd no doubt become familiar with the the certain passion that Jesus expressed when he would pray. So who wouldn't be drawn to the prayers of Jesus? I mean, it wasn't so much big words or eloquence that was beyond human eloquence. It was probably that Jesus prayed very simple, very clear type terminology. What was impressive, what captivated people about Jesus was that when he would speak, or in this case, when he would pray. There was a tone, there was an ethos, there was a reverence, there was a humility, there was a theological depth clearly presented. It, it had practical implications once you heard it. There, there was a unique selflessness in his pleading for other people, even if it costs him time and energy and rest and, and his own resources. There was a selflessness that people heard in his prayers. There was an insightfulness about spiritual issues so that when he prayed for people and needs, he, he wasn't just uh, f using filler language. He really went after it and brought it before God in all its specifics. That was captivating. There was such a compassion for needy people and likely... We might even say absolutely without a doubt, if you heard Jesus pray, you would have been captivated 
by the eternal undercurrent of it. He just had an eternal perspective. As I said, it's not as though your prayers have to be gilded with sophisticated or or fancy words. Just genuine expressions from the heart that made prayer what it is. And so these disciples knew that. And this disciple, he is enamored. He's taken. And he knew that prayer is defined by the Lord. So he says, Lord, teach us to pray. You define it. God defines prayer. We don't define prayer. We don't define its motives. We don't define its uses. Traditions and religions do not define prayer. God defines prayer. He defines its theological content, its practical usage, its necessity, its frequency. God defines those things. And the disciple here seems to have been convinced that God defines prayer and says, Lord, teach us to pray. And he's even convinced that prayer was essential because as John taught his disciples to pray, there was this ongoing now uh, understanding that a mentor took disciples aside and taught them right prayer, taught them uh, to avoid the cheapness and selfishness that we tend to turn prayer into. There was a disciple here convinced that prayer is essential and must be passed down. I think about that in families. Wow, it's amazing when a patriarch prays. It's not the fancy language, even even if they might be erudite. It's the depth. It's concern. There's There's a generational flavor And and if for nothing else, you can feel it in the hands when they grab you, let's pray. And then they open up and, and they're teaching you by their love for it. My dad taught me to pray. I taught my children to pray from early on. I want you to pray. Here's what I want you to pray for. Here's how I want you to pray. If you don't know what words to use, let me give you some biblical words to use. And you know, they memorize those little words and they say the same prayer every time. And as they grow and and their mind expands, the the memory of those things is still there, but they begin to really become genuine and heartfelt in their communion with God. But you teach them. Why? Because you're passing on this essential practice of communing with God. By the way, God's people are unified by prayer. I love the fact that he said, Lord, teach us. Teach us so that we pray like you, all of us. Disciples are more unified by prayer. The body of Christ is many members, but we're, we're one body. We have one head, Jesus Christ. We have one faith, one Holy Spirit, one ultimate life purpose. And, and we're mutually built up in our faith and we're drawn together in unity. When we take all our cues from the Lord on everything we live for and in everything we do. And prayer, by the way, is no exception. The church has often memorized prayers. This, the Lord's Prayer, it's often called, sometimes called the Disciples' Prayer. It's probably the most familiar language, prayer language, across the board all over the world. The church has often memorized prayers like that. They've often recited them together, written them down, and passed them down to others. And while reciting it, might have its benefits. It's also true that praying through the scriptures unites us. Hearing others pray unites us. Just the genuine patterns of truth 
that course their way through the prayers of God's people because that's what was on the heart of Jesus. That's, that draws us together. So Jesus filled his life with prayer just as we sort of move through an introduction here. The disciples longed to imitate Christ in this. And, and for our purposes, as we study this prayer over the next three weeks, we'll say this, and you can put this down in your outline if you're keeping it, redemption should pervade the heart of our prayers. Redemption should be everything that is the undercurrent of our prayers. It should pervade the very heart of our prayers. And we see that in this prayer that Jesus speaks as he's teaching them to pray. What he gives us here is a plumb line, a benchmark. It's not an exact set of words, or he would have said the same exact thing here that he said on the mountainside when the masses were gathered and the disciples heard him there. It's not wrong to recite the prayer, unless, of course, you have no interest in truly believing its truth or or repeating the prayer for you is nothing more than a tradition. That would be wrong. Jesus chides the Pharisees for reciting Jewish prayers with no heart. It would be wrong to recite even the Lord's Prayer if it's just an attempt to gain God's favor by praying lofty-sounding words. Maybe you grew up like that in your tradition. You just need to know that it would be sinful to recite the Lord's Prayer with no interest in believing the truth that you're reciting, and it's just a way to sort of badger the heavens in hopes that God will tire of your repetition and, and placate your need somehow. That's not God. It would also be wrong to recite those things as a way to appear religious in the eyes of others. How terrible. To pretend to be talking to God independence and submission and humility and love and faith while really all you're doing is puffing yourself up in front of other people. You could recite this prayer with a right heart or the other pattern of prayer that you see given in Matthew 6. But Jesus didn't give it as something to recite per se. What he's doing is he's setting forth vital themes and categories as the core around which our, our prayers, our multifaceted prayers are wrapped. It's a pattern for our prayer life. It is a framework of theological truth and practical outworking within which all of our prayers are expressed. Now a simple breakdown of what Jesus says here might go like this. He talks here of God's preeminence. You see that at the beginning. When you pray, he says, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And by the way, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount gave some phrases that you'll notice are absent in what Jesus says here. Well, it's not because he's saying the others weren't important. It's just that the others, more specifically on the Sermon on the Mount, are embedded in the ideas here. You say, what do you mean? Well, when he says thy kingdom come here, and he doesn't say the familiar thy will be done, it's because if he says thy kingdom come, then that means his will is being done. Fully, perfectly, when his kingdom comes. So Matthew 6, what Jesus gave on the hillside is the expanded version. Luke, what he gives to the disciple here, is a zip file. For lack of a better term. All those thoughts are in there. They're embedded. God's preeminence is here. God's sustenance is here. Verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. 
God's benevolence is here. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. So you see the benevolence in the grace of God and forgiveness here. And then you see the deliverance of God here. Uh, Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Of course, he's done that in salvation. And he will continue to preserve us from the evil one all the way till glory. So you see these themes, the preeminence of God, the sustenance of God, the benevolence of God, the deliverance of God, as you, as you work your way through what Jesus gives here. But I want to try to simplify it for you. I want to try to give you a, a so that when you pray, you, you have in your mind a way to sort of hang your thoughts so that these themes become sort of the habit of the way you express the multi uh, kinds of prayers that you offer up to God in the, in the multiple circumstances in which you offer them. I want to try to simplify it here and give you sort of a quick reference guide for your thinking. And, and by the way, don't listen to other people's prayers and say, you know, you, that guy missed a step. You don't need to do that. This is more about the redemptive themes in the pattern of prayer given by Christ to us here. And, and I put them into five redemptive themes. All right, and they're real easy to remember because they're all one word, and they're all similar sounding words. Are you ready for this? Here are the five redemptive themes that, that are really representing the pattern here that you see in our prayer life. The first is worship. The first is worship. The second is lordship. Lordship. The third, speaking of asking God for our daily needs to be met, leadership, the leadership of God. You might even say the headship or something relative to watch care, but the leadership of God in the sustaining graces of our life. Number four is fellowship. You want intimate fellowship with God? You must have the forgiving heart of God, and you must always keep a clear conscience before God. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. And then lastly, Guardianship. Guardianship. God preserves, God protects, and we pray for that, and we thank him for that. So here are the five redemptive themes that seem to course through the pattern of prayer here, and, and you should weave, these should be woven into your prayer life because this is precisely what Jesus teaches here. There is the element of worship. There is the element of the lordship of Christ and our desire to see him lord over all. There is the leadership of his sustaining graces in our life. There is the intimate walk of fellowship as we learn to behave toward others as he has behaved toward us in the gospel. And then there's guardianship where he preserves and protects and that is on our hearts. Redemption should pervade the heart of our prayers. For the remaining few moments, let's, let's cover this first one, this first redemptive theme that is in our prayers, and it begins as Jesus tells this disciple how to pray. He said to them, verse 2, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name. In the Sermon on the Mount, when he spoke, there was this sermon given to the massive crowd, and you remember the language there because it's how we always talk about it, and it's how religions have turned it into a, a traditional prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What, what happens here is, is that Father, hallowed be your name, 
takes all of those concepts and just pulls them right in. As I said, they're embedded here. He is our Father, if you can address Him as Father, and His name is hallowed because He is our Heavenly Father. He is our God and Father. He's the sovereign one. He's in heaven. But it's as though Jesus was, in this case, wanting to pull this into a more close and intimate expression. On the hillside, you could have heard the emphasis of God's transcendence. He's in heaven. I can call him Father, but he's in heaven. Here, it's all embedded into one very stark expression as he opens up with it. The first thing you see here about this element of worship in our prayers is that we have communion with the God of the universe so that we're his children and we call him Father. This isn't our Father so that it's a corporate element. That's true, but this is now individual. I get to go before God. I get to. I'm privileged to go before him as my father. And so when we pray, we're immediately reminded of this stunning truth, that this great majestic and almighty God of the universe has begun an intimate relationship with us. He's adopted us into his family, and he's calling us his children. And you need to realize how shocking this would have been to the Jews, let alone the massive crowds around or any disciple within Jesus' hearing. Ancient Israel did not use the intimate term father when they spoke of their God. They didn't use it as an individual term that they could use, and it wasn't necessarily an intimate term. Out of 39 books in the Old Testament, the term father is used 14 times in reference to God, and it's always the idea that he's the father of all. He's the father over all. He's the transcendent one. That's not a whole lot of usages out of 39 books, and certainly never did they say, my father. They wouldn't say God is my father. They wouldn't even take the covenant name on their lips because God was transcendent. He's sovereign. God is... Not impersonal, and they didn't think he was impersonal, but certainly not an intimate father of each individual. That's not how they viewed it. So it would have been riveting, absolutely riveting, to hear Jesus telling us to personally address God as our father. Now Jesus himself did it, and you remember what the Jews said to him in John chapter 5. They picked up stones to stone him, and he said, for which work are you stoning me? And they said, not for any of the works you're doing, but because you call God your personal what? Father. Making yourself equal with God, John 5, 18. You say, well, wait a minute, he could do that. He is the son, the only begotten of his father. They are in an intimate relationship. Yes. And so now you know Jesus Exclamation point here when he teaches us how to pray and he teaches his disciple how to pray. When we pray, we address God as Father because in Christ we have become joint heirs with Christ of all that he's purchased. We have become his brother. We have been adopted into the family. We have the full privileges of the son, the, 
the ultimate son who, who earned all those privileges, bought all those privileges, purchased them, and gave them to us. Because Christ has an intimate relationship with the Father and we're in Christ, we now have that intimate relationship. We're not equal with God. We don't belong in that intimate relationship as sinners, but we're brought into it. When I pray, I, I go right into the presence of God and I say, Father, I don't fear approaching him. I, I cower sometimes under my weakness. I don't like the fact that I'm sometimes confessing the same sins. And yet I'm reminded that because I'm a child of God and he's my father, he is not saying, until you get your life right, don't ever talk to me again, get out of my face. He is saying, because you're my child, no matter your weakness or sin, you are part of the family. You are my son, my child, my daughter. You come to me. This is illustrated in your family life, isn't it? Maybe some of you had terrible experiences with a dad, but in those families where the grace of God was evident or where your dad was trying his best to be faithful to this, it's a sweet thing in a family when you see that, where children come freely. They come openly, even with their weaknesses. They come tearfully, without fear, because they're not strangers to their father. Look at Romans 8 for a moment, where I read earlier. Just be reminded of the language I read so that you don't pass over it. It's absolutely marvelous. Verse 14, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Listen, when Jesus says to the disciple, here's how I want you to pray, I want you to say, Abba. It's the same word. I want you to say, Abba. Abba, Father. What does that mean? My cherished dad. That's the idea. My cherished father. My beloved, affectionate dad. My beloved, affectionate father. That's the term. And if your children, your heirs also, verse 17, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, so the Spirit bears witness that we're children of God and we're pulled. I mean, we're pulled like my kids used to be pulled to me. They don't want a relationship cut off and severed from their father. Even if you had a bad experience, what nags at you all your life? I wished I could have had a relationship with my dad. I wished I could have had a better friendship with my father. I wished I could have pleased the guy. I wish I would have heard from him just once. I'm proud of you. All your life you can be plagued with that. God intended the power of that natural, free-flowing relationship. And when it's there, you, you don't fear. You come to him because he's your affectionate father. And you're pulled to it, he says. You've been given a spirit of adoption which pulls you to the intimate relationship even when you fail. I'll tell you this, you may not want to go to God and confess but I'll tell you, it's such a sweet thing. 
Because there you are sitting all by yourself in your little pity corner and you don't really want to go to God and what's happening to your heart? I can't go that long without going back to God. He's my father. He's my parent. And I know he's going to discipline me out of love to share in his holiness, never because I'm cut off. My kids sinned against me, but they didn't cease to become my beloved children. I would deliberately say to my kids, even when they were at their worst, I want you to know you're a delight to your father's heart. Sometimes your sin is a pain and a grief, but you never cease to be a delight to your father's heart. Why am I doing that? I want them to know exactly what God tells me. You're never severed from me. You should come. You're pulled to it, Romans 8 says. Beloved, affectionate, dear Father. That's the idea here. God pulls you in. And so communion is where prayer begins. Communion with the Father Wanting to worship him because he has redeemed you and adopted you into that communion. And then notice this worship extends to a humility. Notice you have a reverence here. Hallowed be your name. I love the fact that in our prayer life, these two redemptive themes go side by side in our adoration and worship of God. We are in an intimate, beloved relationship with God, and yet he is the holy God. He is the one who's set apart, and we are saying in our prayers, set yourself apart, vindicate yourself, extol your character through me and through redemption. Be in the exalted place where you belong. Set apart is your name, sanctified is your name, holy is your name. The name of God, by the way, is just a, an expression of all that, he's, that he is and all that he's revealed to his people. It's a concept that is rooted in the Old Testament. Just listen to this. Isaiah 29, verse 23. When he sees his children, God says, the work of my hands in his midst. That is to say, when, when the people of God see in their children the work of my hands in their midst, they will sanctify my name. They will set it apart and say I'm like no other. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Look, when you see who God is, when you see his character set apart, what your heart longs in prayer to say, set it apart. Set yourself apart. Make yourself known. Our pastor, Todd Murray, has taught us that in corporate prayers, hasn't he? When he's used the phrase, get yourself glory. I've loved that phrase. You taught me that phrase. Get yourself glory. That's this expression. Hallowed be your name. When you see the power of God and his character, you will vindicate his name. You won't make God more like you. Oh, why don't you act, God? I would act. Why aren't you just, God? I would be just. Why aren't you fair in that circumstance? I would be fair. Why don't you stop that trial? I would do that. Well, of course you and I would. <laughs> because we're not yet fully sanctified and God is separate from us. God has to say to us, you thought I was altogether like you, Psalm 50. No, 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 he's, he's vindicated. 
He's high and lofty. And in your prayer life, there should be these, these woven strands of expression that say, tell us who you really are. Vindicate who you really are. Don't defend man. Defend yourself. I'll defend you. You're pure, you're righteous, you're majestic. This is God's heart. Ezekiel the prophet, chapter 36, verse 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, by the way, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the Lord, then the nations rather, will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Oh yeah, God wants to prove himself holy and righteous and pure. And when you go to him in prayer, coursing through your prayer life ought to be this undercurrent that it vindicates him. It doesn't cast aspersions at him. Cry out to God in your pain if you must, but vindicate him as separate and holy and right and good and he's just and he's never He's never walked away from you. Turn to 1 Peter 1. And we'll finish there. You know this text well, but it bears comment. First Peter chapter 1. I love this. Verse 14. As obedient children. There it is. You're his children. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it's written, you shall be holy, for I'm holy. You're his children. And if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, then conduct yourselves in reverence during your time of stay upon the earth, knowing that you weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life which you inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed, redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So if you address God as Father, whom you know he impartially judges, and yet you've been saved, what does it mean to address him as Father? Intimate. Closeness, relationship, moral freedom. I'm, I'm totally liberated. I have a, a spirit-produced, supernaturally-produced, grace-produced confidence to just go to him and say, Father, beloved Father, dearest friend and God of my life. And if you go to him like that, with that kind of intimacy... There should be a desire to revere him. Sometimes that's a confusing concept for people. I love what one of my favorite commentaries says. It's the old D. D Edmund Hebert. What a brilliant pastor he was and a, a tremendous um, scholar in God's word, a great Bible preacher and interpreter of God's word. And he just had such great balance here in referring to this fear, this reverence, he says it's not the craven, cringing dread of a slave before an offended master, but it's the reverential awe of a son toward a beloved and esteemed father. Don't you like that? 
It's the reverential awe of a son toward a beloved and esteemed father. The awe that shrinks from whatever would displease and grieve him. Absolutely. Sometimes you could see it in your kids' faces. Sometimes it was in your countenance when you, when you grieved your dad whom you loved. There's an awe of that role and that person and you shrink from whatever would displease him. It's the mark, Hebert says, Hebert says, of a tender conscience. And it's the safeguard against carelessness toward danger. It is formed by our experiences of our Father's merciful dealings with us as his failing children, end quote. I love that. So... Your prayer life. Jesus filled his life up with prayer. I longed to learn to pray like him. And when a disciple asked the question for us, this is where Jesus began. When you pray, here's what I want you to do. I want you to express the communion you have with your beloved dad, your heavenly father. I want you to express the communion you have. So you might have to confess your fear and self-pity right at the front. Lord, I, I, I take the word Father on my lips and, and there's an endearing sense of it, but it's so clouded over with my cowering fear because I think that you're just going to chop me off and the other foot's going to drop. And we, we smear God's goodness and his character like that. No, you go to God and even if it takes confession and prayer, there ought to be this expression that he is beloved and he is endearing and he is close and he communes with you and he wants you to commune with him. He pulls you in by his spirit to say, Dad, I need you. And then there's this reverence that says, you are hallowed, you are to be hallowed, you're separate, you're wonderful, you're beautiful, you're marvelous, you're holy, you're pure, Lord, don't allow me to defend me. Don't allow me to judge you. Don't allow me to put something on you that doesn't represent you. Help me to extol your character as fully just in everything you say, fully righteous in everything you do. And when you call me to pray, let the expression of my heart be that I, I acknowledge who you are and your character. Prayer begins with worship. All three of your prayers are expressions of worship. Next time, we're going to look at the second feature or part of this framework, and that's the lordship which Jesus then follows with when he says, thy kingdom come. It's an absolutely amazing truth to permeate your prayers with. Let's bow together. Lord, how could we come out of your lesson in the school of prayer and express anything less than this marvelous reality? How precious it is to us that, that we can say, Father, and it means what you intended it to mean. We have been adopted into the family of God. We're sons and daughters. With full privilege, how can this be? 
And in that full privilege, you pull us in and you convince us and convict us and you draw us by your Spirit to that endearing relationship. And how often, Lord, our prayers have not expressed the vindication of your goodness and your character. We've complained against it so often. We've pled with you to remove some difficulty or trial or save someone whom we love, which we know you long to do as, you, as a saving God, but we complain about how long it takes or we don't like the specific ways you answer or we, we believe wrong things about you when we don't get the answer we like. Well, this is not to hallow your name. We actually should come before you and vindicate you right from the start. And we do that today, Lord, fully, completely, richly. And we humbly confess that we don't pray as we ought. We need the help of your Spirit, as Romans 8 says, to teach us to pray and to bring the implications of this, your great pattern of prayer, to our hearts. Help us to pray uh, with a compelling passion driven by these truths, so much so that we don't become confident in ourselves or even eloquent in our speech, but, but just restful and believing, trusting and thankful and joyful when we bring our petitions to you. And so we ask for that and that you would give us the daily sustenance we need and protect us and commune with us. May our prayers always be just permeated and pervaded with worship. And we ask it for your sake, for your glory's sake, the vindication of your name in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.